I've been on no sleep for a while now, almost, I'll admit foolishly, desiring to experience something similar, a story to nervously recall around campfires and use as an icebreaker on awkward first dates. It wasn't until talking with an old friend, Gavin, this morning, that I realized I already have that story. It's just one of those things that never registers until your mind is led in its direction. Let me give you some background. Memories of sixth grade are hazy for me, as I'm sure they are for most of you. I went to a sort of specialty school, for lack of a better phrase, focused on education in outdoors and developing sixth graders' independence and self-reliance before entering into middle school and high school. I remember thousands of my city's kids applied for the 60 places. I was thrilled to get in. My mom was even happier. She saw the experience as something I desperately needed. I'd grown up without a dad. She told me he died before I was born. We never talked about it. She seemed to harbor some sort of hatred or bitterness towards my father, for whatever reason. Growing up, I always assumed she resented him for leaving her to raise me on her own. It seemed unfair to me, being as young as I was, but I didn't dare question her reasoning. We took a class camping trip late in the school year, May, I think, up in the north of the state. This week stands out in my mind. I can remember it all vividly, hiking and kayaking, even axe-throwing and archery. It was a paradise for a twelve-year-old. All sixty students had split up into partners, mine of course being Gavin, and each of these pairs sorted into groups around ten, led by a teacher or volunteer counselor. These groups would often rotate their activities and locations each of the seven days, sleeping in the cabins a few nights, going on backpacking trips, and camping out in the woods another night. There were a few other specific experiences I can't remember. The night in question, however, remains clear in my memory. It was what we'd referred to as survival night, the legendary final test for us students. We were given a gallon of water, a tarp, a few matches, and a bag of food items, and sent off into the woods at least a mile away from the nearest other kids or teacher. Obviously, it wasn't meant to be hard, but back then, it had intimidated even the bravest of our class, Gav and I included. I remember we took turns trying to scare each other on the hike to the campsite. You've got the matches, right? I asked. Gavin feigned panic, frantically patting down his pockets and reveling in the fear that bloomed across my face before pulling them from his jacket. Relax, man, he said, bursting into a fit of laughter. Very funny. You really think I'd forgot the matches? I believe you're the one that's been losing everything, he laughed. It was true. So far I'd managed to lose four or five articles of clothing, my journal, and my schedule of what days we'd be doing what. I was almost scared to go home and tell my mom about the clothes. So what's the worst case scenario? What do you think? What? What do you think is the worst thing that could happen to us tonight? Ghosts? Maybe a bear? Ghost bears? Uh, ghosts, definitely. I smiled. You're seriously comparing the two? Well, a bear would just kill you. Sure, it'd hurt, but after that, it'd be over. I said, cutting him off. Ghosts, well... That's a different story. They'd kill you and haunt you after you're dead. Ghosts can't kill people. And what kind of ghost would haunt another ghost? 
What's the fun in that? I'll tell you what kind of ghost. A vengeful one. I outstretched my arms and hung them over Gavin's head, letting out an and wagging my fingers. Your ghost impression needs work, dude. Before we knew it, we were there. We draped the tarp over a low-hanging branch and gathered sticks and dead leaves for our fire. We already mutually agreed to keep the fire going and stay up through the entire night. That, of course, would take more wood than our twelve-year-old minds had planned. We ran out around 11 p.m. I'll go look around there, said Gavin, shining his flashlight behind him into a grove of aspen trees. You check over there. I stood up, brushing the dirt off my jeans, and started towards the area he'd indicated. It wasn't long before I noticed it, a glimpse of bright red as I moved my flashlight. My adolescent curiosity took over, and I approached it. It was a backpack, leaning against the trunk of a tall pine, one of those that looked perfect for climbing. I grabbed it without a second thought, and examined it in the light. It was old and tattered, with rips in the nylon, and missing zippers. Gav, I found something, I yelled over to him, dragging it to the fire. Check this out. He returned with an armful of sticks, letting them fall to the ground and approaching me. What is that? A backpack? That's not yours, is it? No, it was by a tree over there. That's so cool. Should we open it? Or... I don't know. Maybe it belongs to... I paused in the middle of the thought. Jack? In one of the rips, I caught a glimpse of something. It was the corner of a leather-bound notebook. But it couldn't be. Jack! Is that my journal? I whispered. What? What do you mean? I ignored his question, ripping the bag open to reveal a gallery of my things. My mind faltered. I felt waves of nausea and disbelief batter me from the inside. Dude, is that your hat? And that's our schedule? I don't remember much of what happened next. We sprinted to our assigned teacher's tent, struggling to explain it all coherently when we arrived. The police were called, teachers and counselors led us out of the woods, and the next morning at breakfast we were informed the trip had been cut short and we were going home that day. I wish this story had a definitive ending, both for my sake and yours. What I can leave you with is Gavin and I's phone conversation from this morning. Does it bother you that they've never found the guy? Uh, That's a scary thought. Whoever he was, he had a hard-on for us especially. I spoke, letting out a little nervous laughter. What? What are you talking about? I felt my stomach sink. What are you talking about? Don't you think we would have been the first ones to know if they had? There was an uncomfortable silence before Gavin spoke again. Didn't your mom tell you? No. What? Tell me what? They definitely caught the guy. Arrested him the same night it all happened. <laughs> or rearrested, I guess. Gav chuckled. Again, there was a pause in conversation. You okay, Jack? Rearrested? I managed. Yeah, he was an escaped convict. Can you believe that? Oh, and you haven't even heard the craziest part. The guy had the same last name as you. What a coincidence, huh?
A couple of summers ago, I was working at a summer camp in the Midwest. My position wasn't exactly of a counselor, but more of an assistant. I was training to become a counselor, and there's a requirement of at least a half summer as this assistant counselor position. I loved camp, though. I'd been going since I was nine, so I didn't mind the low pay, lots of paperwork, and honestly low recognition for our efforts. One day, I was on my way to the equestrian area of camp. The skills we teach come out of a lottery system, and I got stuck with horses despite a clear lack of interest or expertise with them, when I ran into a kid in a hoodie crouched on the side of the pathway. I was running late myself, so I mentioned to him that he should hurry up so that he doesn't miss the roll call at skills and instigate a camp-wide Amber Alert. He didn't respond and on top of that, did something weird and incredibly disgusting. He picked up what looked like a worm off the ground and ate it. Just slurped it up like it was spaghetti. I freaked out and ran over to him to get it out of his mouth, but by the time I got to him, his mouth was empty. I turned on him and incredulously asked why he would eat a worm. His previously expressionless face changed into a creepy smirk and said, I just needed a snack. Well, you just had breakfast. (laughs) That wasn't food enough for both of us. This was odd, but I just assumed he was talking about another camper and himself. I resigned to walking him to his next skill after radioing in about how I was going to be late to the corral. I also made a mental note to remind the kid's counselor to make sure his kids are eating enough since at least one was resorting to eating bugs. A couple of days passed with nothing weird going on. When walking back from planning an activity for the next day, I came across a pile of I would have ignored it, but for the fact that it looked human trying to suppress my exasperation with the fact that there was a bathroom not 50 feet away, I gave a sigh and was about to report the pile of crap to janitorial when I noticed there were bits of white in it. Curious, but with an obvious sense of apprehension, I approached the feces and gave it a closer look. I almost lost my lunch right there. The bits of white speckled in the crap were small animal bones. I hope to whatever deity exists that there were chicken bones from our dinner several nights ago, but they were much too small. My disgust deepened when I noticed a skull. It was quite clearly a mouse skull. I sat there thinking, what the hell could make a kid eat a mouse, when I realized that there were some bones that clearly weren't mouse bones. They were much too long for a mouse. Then my memories of biology class kicked in. These bones I was noticing were from a bird's wing. Using a stick, I searched for the skull, but I found none. I was still quite sure it was a bird's wing. I radioed the janitorial staff and the camp director. The director was clearly disturbed by my finding, but he told me to keep it quiet and had the janitorial staff dispose of the excrements. At dinner that night, the director made an announcement about diet, and that if somebody felt they weren't getting proper nutrition, they should consult their counselor. He slipped it in among other announcements as to not raise suspicion, but the comment still got a fair amount of raised eyebrows from counselors. That night, I was walking back to my cabin after our evening activity, when I ran across the camper that ate the worm, again, in a hoodie. I quipped jokingly, Hey! You find anything tastier than worms yet? He gave me a matter-of-fact look and said, Yes, actually. Rodents are much more filling than worms. A cold pit formed in my stomach. Trying to roll with a punch, hoping it was a joke, I responded, Really? They don't sound that appetizing, I managed to mutter. Well, better than birds. Much too bony. I was slowly walking backwards at this point. I didn't respond, considering I was scared What was even scarier was that he advanced as I retreated. 
We've been getting really hungry lately, though. We need a real meal. We think we'll move up the food chain. Maybe to the top. I turned to run, but before I got three steps, I felt the kid leap onto my back and sink his teeth into my right shoulder. I screamed in pain, falling to the ground. I attempted to reach around my back, trying to get him off. Finally, I felt a small portion of my flesh give way, and the kid fell backwards, taking some of me with him. I screamed even louder and turned on him. He was sitting there, smiling, his face smeared with my blood, chewing on my skin. He charged at me again. On my back this time, I kicked him straight in the chest, sending him backwards into a tree. He hit the ground and stopped moving. I checked my shoulder quickly, and while my shirt was soaked in blood, the bleeding didn't seem too bad. I then turned to the kid. I approached him, cautiously, wincing whenever I moved my shoulder too much. Once I reached him, I stumbled back in horror. After hitting the tree, the hood came off his hoodie, and I could see the back of his neck. On it was this bright yellow and orange bug. It was like a huge but short centipede, about nine inches long and one and a half inches wide, with small exposed soft spots that appeared on its back every inch or so. One of these was punctured and leaking gray ooze. I'm assuming the aggressive contact with the tree caused it. It seemed to have a head, but if it did, it was buried deep in the kid's neck, just below the nub of bone on the back of the skull. As I reached for the kid's jugular to check a pulse, he suddenly twitched. I shot backwards, my nerves all but gone. He then got up, gave me this inhuman snarl, and ran into the woods. I radioed in for help, and once several counselors, a nurse, and our director arrived, I told them the whole story while the nurse patched me up. They didn't seem to believe me, but they also couldn't seem to explain the chunk of flesh missing from my shoulder. The bite definitely didn't look like it had come from any animal nearby. Just to check, the nurse swabbed the bite and said she would send it into a lab to get some results on what attacked me. She finished with the bandage, and we quickly started a camp-wide search for that little camper. He never turned up. Adding up the fact that I was the last to see him, and the crazy story I recounted, most of the blame fell to me. I was sent home on suspension, and they said there would be a formal hearing. I got a call to come in a week later to see the director. This was uplifting since disciplinary action was usually settled with the board of directors, usually just heavily involved parents of campers. The director's expression wasn't happy, though. He said they never found the kid, but the test came back with odd results. He wouldn't elaborate, but he went on to say that I was being let go. On the plus side, he said I'd be paid for my full stint there, which didn't end for three more weeks. He made some bullshit reasoning that I wasn't what the camp was looking for in their counselors, and that it wouldn't work out. In my years as a camper, he always mentioned that I would be a great counselor, and he was the main reason I was trying to become one. I could obviously tell that he was told to say all this, but I didn't want to push it and get too involved, so I thanked him for the fun years at camp, and I left. After a lot of therapy, I stopped thinking and dreaming about it. Since then, only a couple odd things have brought up memories. I asked my doctor for my medical history when applying for college, but he found my medical examination after the camp incident gone. I did a web search and found that the camp director left camp shortly after I did. I don't know if he joined a different camp or just got out of the camp business entirely. Some camp friends still contact me, but it was never the same as before the incident. I still have a scar but it has faded a lot compared to when the bandages came off. Now I'm about to enter my senior year of college this coming fall, and truthfully, I had not thought about this story for several years until one of my close friends whom I told the true story pointed me towards this site. 
If somebody has ever heard of anything like this, please contact me. It's been 20 years since I worked as a counselor at Camp Valleyway. 20 years that I've tried to forget what I saw, lying to myself and others about what I know happened. And for many of those years, I succeeded in fooling myself, pushing the dark thoughts to hidden places in my mind. But after reading the newspaper today, I can lie to myself no longer. Let me begin my story. I started work when I was 15, spending my summers away at Camp Valleyway. The camp was nestled in the foothills of the Appalachians, cupped in a valley between two mountains with a natural lake at the center, its waters stained murky with southern clay. I worked as a swim instructor, and each week a new set of campers traveled from across the state to experience the outdoors. I remember the exact day it happened. Tuesday, fifth week of the camp, the hottest day that summer, and just before the 4th of July. That week was known as Rich Week to the counselors, since many of the wealthier parents took off for the holiday and left their children behind. It came right after Orphan Week, which was when the Clarkstown Orphanage, largest in the state, traveled to camp free of charge because the camp was government-owned. Yearly, the local residents came by at the end of the week, and the children were often adopted. Just last week, a girl in my class had found a new home with some farmers a few miles out, and I remember seeing Ellie wave from the cab of a pickup truck as she started her new life in the country. As a swim instructor, in my off time I helped sail instructors patch sails under the water sports canopy. Logan, the head of the water sports, and about five years older than me, sat across from the picnic tables, his small eyes looking over the lake. Logan kept his hair in a tight buzz cut, revealing a scar at the back of his forehead, and when he spoke, it was in a deep drawl. Mm, Mike, watch what you're doing, he growled, noticing I had skipped a stitch. I only got two eyes, and there's just too damn much going on for me to watch everyone today. Uh, sorry, I got it. I said, and put my head down. Logan kept a tight watch on his crew, but now his focus was on the lake. Ed and Ted, two twin counselors with one brain between them, were teaching at a beginner's swimming course. Ed and Ted always made Logan uneasy, and had earned a spot of first and second on his mental list of instructors who were most likely to screw up next. So when Ed, the smarter of the two, came sprinting up from the lake so fast his legs spewed a dirt exhaust behind him. Logan was ready. Ed opened his mouth, words wheezing between each intake breath and his wet hair plastered over one eye. We're, we're missing one. One, one, one camper. Can't find him in the water. Friends don't know where he is. Without hesitation, Logan's whistle shrieked through the campground, startling the campers and counselors alike. Out of the water! Out of the water! All lifeguards to the dock! He shouted, his deep chest working like a bellow as adrenaline shot through me and we ran to the water. As a lifeguard, it was our responsibility to search for the body, so fifteen of us lined up on one end of the swimming section. At Logan's call, we dove, myself in the deeper end at fifteen feet, and spread out across the bottom. The water filtered sunlight and heat, so the bottom was cold and dark, with underwater plants that gripped against my calves and pulled me back as I swam. After three strokes, I returned to the surface, and Logan sent us back down again to search, hoping to find a still warm form. I was the one who found the body. Its hand brushed against my face, a pale palm that was all too white. I saw the face next, too dark to recognize, but a girl's, with long hair that fanned around her like she was under static electricity. I gasped, involuntarily drawing water into my lungs. 
I gripped her torso and began swimming to the surface. She felt swollen, her arms too big, and her temperature a cold that I will never forget. Halfway to the surface, I felt her leg catch on something, and she began to slip out of my grip. I turned, watching her open eyes on mine as she descended. My lungs screamed, and I knew I needed to get air, or I would be joining her down below for much longer than I intended. I, I, I found her, I shouted, breaking the surface. Quick! I dove back down, my hands sweeping through the muddy bottom. I found nothing but muck and empty water, even as the other lifeguards joined. Five minutes later, and Logan's whistle rang out again, calling us to the dock. The camper has been found, he announced, in a restroom by his side. Ed and Ted must have let him slip past them, and both of them will spend the night scrubbing the dock with your own toothbrushes. Logan paused, and I felt the lifeguard's gaze fall on me. You're free to go now, except for Mike. I want a word. The others trudged away, looking back at us over their shoulders. Logan focused on me, spittle meshing with his words as he hissed. I don't know what the hell that was about, Mike, but you could have cost us a life with your false call back there. And next time you try something like this, I'll take yours. But I saw something, I insisted. I don't believe in ghosts, Mike, and we scoured the water. Get out of my sight. You're on the waterfront. He left, and word spread around the camp about what had happened. I could tell many of them detested me, and none believed what I said had happened. So I quit next week and pushed the death from my mind, though it still found my dreams. That was twenty years ago, and today I hold the newspaper, the top article calling back my memories. Murders at Camp Valley Way. Nineteen skeletons had been discovered in the lake of Camp Valleyway, several aged over thirty years since the time of death, and none younger than ten. Due to state-sponsored renovations, the lake was drained, revealing a collection of bones at the deepest region. Several femurs were found attached to the anchors with rope, and after much investigation, the state police discovered the source of the bodies. Ten years ago, before Clarkstown Orphanage was shut down for embezzling state funds, each summer the orphans spent a week at the camp. Nineteen were thought to be adopted by locals in the nearby proximity to the camp, but after reviewing the records, police had discovered these adoptions were never documented. All nineteen kids were drowned and disposed of in the lake, at an area too deep for the campers to normally enter, except for that one that drifted near the swimming area due to the insecure rope. It is believed that the orphanage collected funds appropriated for these children long after their death. Police encourage anyone with information on the matter to step forward. When I was around ten years old, my mother sent me away to summer camp for a week with my cousin. I thought it would be fun because my cousin and I got along very well. The first couple of days in summer camp were fun, just as I'd hoped. I started to get into the flow of how the activities work, and how the other kids were. I generally got along with all of them. While my camp was going on, so was another camp in the same building. The other camp was for children with special needs, and our camp would always have lunch at the same time as their camp would. We'd all have lunch together, and everything was always fine. Around the second day of camp, I noticed a girl from the other camp sitting by herself, with an intense scowl on her face. I wondered why she was sitting alone while all of the other kids were having fun. She seemed to be ignored. The more I watched her, the more I noticed her strange tendencies. 
She would whisper to herself while staring into space, and sometimes she would rock slowly back and forth. Being the adorable ball of innocence and sunshine that I was, I thought she just needed a friend. Maybe she was talking to herself because no one would talk to her. I decided to approach her. I introduced myself, and she didn't acknowledge me whatsoever. I persisted, trying to make small talk by asking her simple questions. What's your name? was answered with silence. Finally, I gave up and said, Why won't you talk to me? She finally turned her head towards me and looked at me. She said, They can hear us. I thought she was talking about the counsellors. I figured she was incredibly shy. I asked her why it mattered if they heard us. Her eyes widened as if she was shocked to hear that I didn't know the answer to that question myself. She told me that they were watching, and that they wouldn't want her to talk about them. At this point, I thought she was batshit crazy. I agreed with her, so as not to offend her, and lunchtime ended. We went back to our separate camps. I was unable to focus on any activities, though. I kept thinking about what the girl had said. I couldn't get my mind off her, even when I went back to my cousin's house. The next day is the reason I never went back to summer camp. I was incredibly anxious to go to lunch and talk to the girl. I was the first person from my camp to enter the cafeteria. I sat by the girl and listened to her whisper to herself. Only, she wasn't whispering to herself. She was whispering to them. She said things like, Don't do that. I don't want that. All of them think I'm crazy. And, please, stop. She said lots of other things, but those are the ones that really stood out to me. She'd say those things over and over. I asked her who they were. She jolted her head in my direction and said that she couldn't tell me. They would hear. Then I made the mistake of asking her why she was afraid of them. Her exact words were, Now you've done it. They're coming for us. They're going to get all of us. She got up and bolted for the doors and left. The whole few days I'd known this girl, she always whispered and moved slowly. But not that day. That day she frightened me. The fear on her face made me afraid, without knowing what I was afraid of. A little later in the afternoon was the award ceremony for the first half of the week. I remember that I had to go to the bathroom in the beginning of the ceremony. When I returned, the counsellor towards the back of the room made me stay in the back so I wouldn't interrupt the ceremony. I was fine with that. I noticed that the girl was sitting in the seat next to me. I don't know how I didn't notice right away, but I didn't. It was like she appeared out of nowhere. She was whispering to me this time, telling me that they were coming today. The counsellor nearest me told me not to pay her any mind, but it was too late for that. She was already in my head, or maybe it was they who were in my head. The next thing I know, I'm standing at the front of the room above a girl that was receiving an award. Apparently, I walked all the way to the front to punch her in the face. Her nose bled and the counsellor screamed and took me to the back of the room and were about to call my parents. I looked back at the crazy girl and saw that she was grinning and laughing at me. Then I looked back at the girl I punched and realised she was the one that picked on the crazy girl on a daily basis. The crazy girl was by my side. I hadn't noticed her get up because I was still trying to understand what had just happened to me. The girl turned to me and told me not to worry. My head was spinning. I was so confused. That's when the girl suddenly stiffened and stared at the ceiling. She screamed. They are here! They're here! At the top of her lungs. 
At that exact moment, all of the lights went out. Now, this was the massive blackout of 2003 in New York. The rest of that week, I could hardly sleep. The girl was no longer at summer camp, and when I asked about her, no one knew who I was talking about. Apparently there were lots of kids that whispered to themselves in that camp. I even asked the girl that I punched. She just told me to get away from her. I always tell myself that it was a coincidence that the blackout happened when she said they were here. Maybe she just got sick and couldn't return to the camp. Maybe her parents needed the money and took her out of the camp. Maybe they had something to do with her disappearance. Maybe I invented the girl to keep me company while I sat alone at lunch and whispered to them. After high school, I went to work at this summer camp up in Backwoods, Ontario. If you're not from Ontario and have never been, just understand that after a certain point, the whole province is just deep woods that basically go on forever. It's all just pine trees and quiet lakes, most of which have no people around for miles. The camp has been running out of my hometown for years. It mostly services kids with behavioral and emotional problems usually from bad or at least very poor homes. It gives them a chance to experience a good summer and lets them get away from home for a while. It's super low budget though, and is just basically a couple of buildings out in the middle of nowhere on our own private lake. So this camp is really old and has lots of traditions, one of which is a now somewhat infamous ghost story. It's too long to tell here, but essentially what happens is that two brothers who trapped furs in the area 150 years ago fall for the same woman, and after getting into a drunken fight, the jealous brother accidentally decapitates the other with an axe. After hiding the body, he is haunted by the ghost and eventually dies from a heart attack, while the now widowed woman waits in the woods for her dead husband in her wedding dress until mysteriously disappearing, leaving only a bloody dress behind in a tree. We tell this story near the end of the week and set up a scare for the kids. It's a bit sadistic, but it's all in good fun, and the kids get over it. Most come back to volunteer at the camp and help scare the new kids. Now the day before this story is told, the kids all go out with their counselors and have an overnight sleeping trip in the woods. We obviously save the story for later, since there's no way you'd spend a night in the woods after hearing it. I was a lifeguard at the camp, so I stayed behind with a couple of others to respond to any health emergencies that happened on the trips. All that usually happened is a kid gets stung by a bee or gets sick and has to spend a night in the infirmary. Nothing really serious. Not usually. On the second last week of the summer, the kids all went out on a trip, and I stayed back, same as any other week. The four of us who stayed back were sitting in the mess hall playing cards and chatting, when a call came over one of the radios. It was from one of the campsites on the water. The sites are all spread out throughout the area, and this one is across the lake, accessible only by canoe. The counselor said that one of her kids was losing his mind. Getting information over the radios is really hard, since they're just short range and the signal cuts out after a certain distance. From what we could understand though, the kid said he met someone in the woods who tried to get him to come with him. He got too scared and ran and told his counselor and had almost ran away several times while they tried to calm him down. Now, I should mention that a lot of these kids can be trouble. They act up for attention and can be a real handful sometimes. But this particular kid was one of the quiet, sweet ones. He was only nine and just this shy little goofball who, if you paid any attention to, would talk your ear off about his favorite dinosaurs and TV shows. He hadn't given any of us any problems all week and was actually starting to make friends at this point. It was really hard for him to be social with other kids. So, basically, with these kids, we take everything with a grain of salt, 
So a story like this isn't enough to make us call the police, especially since the nearest police station is 40 minutes away. So we talk and decide that maybe this kid should come spend the night back in the main cabin. Kids sleep in there all the time when they're having problems. It's pretty routine. One of the cooks who stayed behind says he'll come with me and get the kid. I had to go. It was part of my job. We start to walk down through the woods to the docks where all the canoes are tied up. It's a calm night and nothing is really moving in the woods. The stars are out and everything is still. The forest in this area can be pretty creepy at night, so I'm glad I have company. When all you have to see is a small flashlight, it can feel like you're surrounded by darkness and that there's something always moving off to the edges of your vision as the light casts off every branch and stump. We get to the shore, grab some paddles, and hop in one of the canoes. The water is so calm that it looks like a mirror reflecting back the stars. As we get closer, we can see that there are lights on in the campsite. We make our way across the lake, then come up to the shore. All of the counselors are sitting on the shore with their flashlights pointed back into the woods, completely lighting up all the trees. The kid is huddled up behind them, sobbing and muttering to himself. We dock and start jokingly trying to figure out what they're all doing, asking if they're expecting someone to come walking out of the trees. But they don't laugh. The younger counselors, who are only 15 themselves, tell us that while they were trying to calm the kid down, he started panicking, shouting that she was coming to take him away and telling them that he knew she was in the trees. The head counselor took me aside and said that they had seen something walking between the tents. But when they all turned their flashlights on, they couldn't see anything. She was trying to stay calm and not let on how scared she was. But her pupils were enormous and her hands were shaking a bit. The whole time, the cook who came with us had been trying to calm this kid down who wouldn't stop freaking out since we got there. He had wet his pants at this point, but hadn't seemed to notice. I asked the counselor if she thought she'd be okay spending the night, and she assured me that it's probably nothing, just the woods playing tricks on them. I tried to make a case that it was totally possible there was someone in the woods, and that maybe it wasn't safe to stay out, but she was adamant that it was in her head. Plus, waking up all the kids in the middle of the night, packing up camp, and canoeing back across the lake with them just wasn't practical, she said. My boss would have killed us if we had done something like that, just because some nine-year-old kid had a bad dream. So, we decided instead that we should take this kid back and let him sleep inside a building so he can relax. Myself, the cook, and this kid climb into the canoe, and after one last time to make sure things were okay, set off back across the lake. Once we were out in the middle of the water, the kid seemed to calm down. We tried talking to him, and he seemed to relax a bit. He began telling us about the woman he saw. He said that he'd woken up because he thought he heard his mother calling him out of the woods. He got out of his tent and walked a bit back and said that he had seen a woman standing there. He said she was really tall and skinny and that her hair was messy and that it covered her face. He said she had antlers like a deer. She had asked him to help her in the woods and when he had refused, she got mad. She had started to walk towards him, and he had got scared and ran across and started forcing his way into the counselor tent. We joked that sometimes the woods can make you see stuff, and maybe it was all just a dream. He pushed back against this idea at first, but then said that maybe we were right. He was pretty mature for his age, and I think he was starting to get a bit embarrassed about wetting his pants. He started to downplay the whole situation a bit. When we were about 40 meters from the shore, the cook, who was sitting at the front of the canoe, flipped on his flashlight so we could see the dock. The kid immediately lost his mind. He said that she was on the shore with her hands outstretched to him. He started shrieking like I have never heard before. 
It was like he was being tortured, pure fear and adrenaline. He had no idea what to do and stood up almost tipping our canoe over. He screamed, Go back! Go back! at the top of his lungs and tried to walk to the back of the canoe. We stopped paddling and tried to calm him down, but it wasn't working. He rocked us really bad and I worried that we were all about to go overboard. I told him we would go back if he would just sit down. He did, but he didn't stop pleading with us to make her go away, and what was more he kept shouting that she would never have him. We paddled backwards and started heading for the alternate boat launch, further down the water. I tried to talk to him, but he's beyond reasoning. I tried to talk to the cook, but he wasn't responding to me either. He stopped paddling, so I struggled to move us all by myself. Eventually, he put his oar into the water, but he still wouldn't respond to me. We paddled back down, and when we got back to the shore, I had to remind the cook to turn the flashlight on so he didn't hit any of the rocks. He hesitated, but eventually turned it on. The kid was still scared at me, but gratefully he didn't see anything as we docked. The alternate boat launch was still farther up the road from the camp, so we had about a ten minute walk along the gravel road to get back to the camp. The kid gripped my arm as hard as he could, and I basically had to drag him up the road. Now up until this point, I had been pretty relaxed about everything. It had all been a bit unnerving, but my job is to be calm, to be the rational one in emergency situations, so I made it my responsibility to be a calming presence for the kid. But when we were about halfway back, things changed. The kid stopped in his tracks and asked if we heard her. I entertained the idea and stopped to listen just to try and reassure him that I didn't hear the same thing that he did. But when I strained my ears, I did hear something. I can't fully describe it. It was something of a sort of humming noise, but much softer. It had a cadence like a person speaking, but I couldn't hear any words. It sort of swelled and got quieter. I looked at the cook, and he was now visibly afraid. The sound started to get louder, and it seemed to be coming from all directions. It had a rhythm like like breathing, and the air seemed to vibrate with it. The kid started to bolt, and the cook was right behind him. I followed close behind, feeling the noise rising behind me and getting closer. The cook literally picked the kid up off his feet and ran with him in his arms because the kid couldn't keep pace. We came up to the camp, and the cook ran straight for the main cabin. He threw the door open and tried to slam it in my face, but I pushed through, and he closed it behind me. The others hadn't waited up for us, and the cabin was pretty empty. We were all panting, and the kid was now wheezing from crying so much. We coaxed him into the infirmary to try and get him a spare set of sheets and pillow to let him sleep on the cot in there but he asked us not to go. We told him that we would be right outside the door if he got scared. The two of us sat at the table in the mess hall. Neither of us spoke to the other right away. After a minute, the cook looked up at me and told me he saw something down at the water's edge. I asked him what it was, what he had seen, and he said it was like a silhouette on the dock. He said it was big and pure black, and that the light from the flashlight seemed to pour into it. He asked if I saw it too, and I told him I hadn't seen anything. I told him that all I heard was a humming noise, but he was confused. He said he didn't hear the humming. He said he heard a person. He said it was like a distant call at first, but quickly got so close that he thought it was right next to him. He said it was a voice, but speaking without any tone or rhythm, that the words were just nonsense, like hearing a language you don't understand. And it sounded like a woman. We stayed up the entire night in the mess hall. Neither of us wanted to go outside and walk back to the cabins. 
We didn't mention any of this other stuff to the other counselors from the lake. One of the counselors said that after we left, nothing weird happened that night, and that she had mostly forgotten about what had happened at her campsite the last night. The kid begged us to let him go home, but we ended up making him stay. He would not stop talking about what had happened, but we eventually had to make him stop because he was scaring all of the other campers. He clung to the counselor at all times and never let them out of his sight for the rest of the week. I really can't account for what happened that night. Nothing like that has ever happened to me after. I even went back for a second summer and nothing similar happened. But I know what I heard that night. I have no idea what could have made that noise. But I do know that it was the most unnatural sound I have ever heard. The kid didn't come back the second summer, and neither did the cook. I saw him a year later while out at the bar, and after some chatting and catching up, I brought up what happened that night. He got really upset and stormed away and didn't talk to me for the rest of the night. I think he really believes what he saw out there, but I don't know what to believe about it. Being young and bold and trying to step out of my comfort zone, I decided to accept a job at a summer camp in Hawaii. I spent three months out there, and I have to say being born and raised in a landlocked state like Colorado, it was quite a shock integrating into a habitat that was the polar opposite of what I'd been accustomed to my entire life. I just got back a couple of days ago. It was a fantastic and life-changing experience, but it's good to be home. (laughs) One reason being that I have technology again. This camp was in the middle of absolute nowhere. An infernal black hole that sucked all reception and Wi-Fi and decimated it into oblivion. This is all relevant because I had some odd occurrences that I wanted to share with the public in order to get explanations and hopefully some closure. But I, of course, had no means to do it until now. Have you ever been by yourself, closed your eyes, and sworn that you weren't alone? This is a sensation that I've grown to abhor. It was the first week here at camp, and I was nervous as hell. I was eager to start this new adventure up until the very first moment I was in Hawaii. The second I stepped off the plane, I saw a cockroach fly onto a man's face so it was easy to see from that point on I was a little apprehensive. The friends I made alleviated my fear of the uncharted territory very quickly, though. We were a ragtag bunch from all over the States, some from other countries as well, and I'm not sure if it was due to our chemistry or the looming fact that we would see each other every single day for the next couple of months, but we all got along almost instantaneously. The camp facilities were all built in a clearing of dirt and dead grass, dry and inhospitable to bare feet. There were six or seven weathered buildings that littered around the area in an unorganized fashion, with the dining hall being the hub of it all and the cabin quarters scattered around the outskirts. The only redeeming quality of this area was that it was built on the beach, so I was always less than a minute away from the ocean. At first glance, it seemed like the camp was in a perfect area, but after looking around more... I realized it was actually in an intriguing location. While one side of the camp was backed up against the beach, every other side was surrounded by these woods. The perimeter around the camp was settled with thick, gnarling trees with branches, I swear to God, like fingers clawing toward the sky. The woods started to invade the edges of the camp like frost slowly creeping in from the corners of a windowpane, giving this summer camp this freakish gothic prominence, unfortunate for places that harbor laughter and play. It was about noon and we'd just finished lunch when all the camp counselors were led into a thicket of the woods. It had been a couple of days since I got to camp and I was already pretty good friends with most of the other counselors. Regardless, the camp counselor deemed it necessary that we still learned more about each other and ourselves by partaking in a couple of cliché trust exercises and team-building games, practicing, of course, on each other before we taught them to the campers that were starting to come next week. 
The first exercise we did was the classic blindfold game. For those unfamiliar with this game, everyone is paired up with one partner, and one is blindfolded while the other partner has to guide them verbally toward a goal. I paired up with this really cute girl named Clara and volunteered to be the one blindfolded first. She tied the bandana around my eyes and spun me around for about 20 seconds or so. Once I was completely disoriented and stumbling around, Clara started shouting out directions, giggling with every instruction. All right, turn to your left and take ten steps forward. No, 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 turn slightly and walk forward six steps, and watch out for the tree branch. This went on for a couple more minutes, before I guess I misheard what she'd said and walked too far in one direction. While I was walking, something didn't feel right, because everything became muffled. With each step I took, the sounds of other people... The wind, the birds, the crashing waves of the ocean, even the sound of my own footsteps melted away until there was complete and utter silence. That's when I felt it. Even though I could only see the blackness of the blindfold over my eyes, every hair on my body stood on end. I felt that inches away there was someone standing right in front of me. I knew it. I could sense it, and I could feel their presence only inches away from me. Instinctively, I called out, Clara, is that you? But as I reached out in front of me, I felt nothing. There wasn't anything there. The second I put my hands down, the same sense of dread immediately overcame me. This time I felt like someone was so close in front of me that they could have leaned in and touched me. I fell back in a panic and ripped the blindfold off my eyes, only to be greeted by the scene that I was initially a part of. The warmth of the sunlight cascaded down onto my brow as I saw all of the other camp counselors either aimlessly wandering around blindfolded or shouting and laughing at the helplessness of their partner. The birds clamored to one another, and the ocean conversed through its breaking waves. The person nearest me was Clara, who was thirty feet away. She ran over with a very concerned look struck on her face. Hey, you all right? Clara, were you messing with me the entire time? I sharply retorted. What do you mean? I was talking to Holly for a couple of seconds, and when I looked back, you were on the ground. When I had the blindfold on, I felt someone standing right in front of me. She changed her look from one that was sympathetic to one that thought I was a little mentally unstable. Um, no one was near you. As you see, you ended up walking in the complete opposite direction of the goal, even with my precise directions. She giggled again and started to walk back to the group as we were starting the next team building game. She was lying. I knew it. That sense of someone standing in front of me was so real, it was so unnerving and put me on edge all the rest of the day. This sensation of fear and paranoia invaded my thoughts and emotions and slowly grinded me down. By the end of the day I was so exhausted that right after dinner I went back to my cabin and collapsed into bed. As my vision faded and I slowly passed out, one thought came to my mind. I had to try it again. We were given the next day off. The camp director knew we worked our asses off training and preparing for the long weeks of unrelenting work yet to come, so he decided to give us a full day to go and enjoy ourselves. I was so tired from the previous night that I slept completely through breakfast and woke up just in time for lunch. After I ate, I slipped away to head back to the same part of the woods we were in yesterday. After a few minutes of searching, I found the exact spot I stood in before. It was at the base of a tree that had no branches and stood straighter than the rest. The ground underneath was layered with blankets of dirt and rotting leaves. I stood by the tree, my feet sinking into the decaying foliage, and it began to mold around my shoes as if it was inviting me to stand there for the rest of eternity. 
Once again, I tied the blindfold around my eyes and proceeded to spin for another 20 seconds or so. Then I waited. It was only a couple of seconds before the same feeling I would come to loathe began to burrow itself under my skin and fester. The paranoia and sinking feeling that someone was standing in front of me paralyzed my nervous system. This feeling came much worse than before because I knew for a fact that I was completely alone. I tried to keep the blindfold on for as long as possible while the trepidation engulfed me entirely. Every little hair on the back of my neck was about to rip itself out of my skin by the follicle as I could feel this person inching closer and closer to me. I kept my hands to my sides, seeing how far I could push my threshold of terror. At this point I was shaking, but I knew my will was strong and I could manage to endure this sensation for a couple more minutes. Until I felt a warm breath on the back of my neck. I broke down and started running wildly, flailing with one hand while trying to take off the blindfold with the other. When I finally managed to get the stupid thing off, I saw what I feared most. Nothing. I saw absolutely nothing. There was nobody there, and I was completely alone with trees that have remained sentinels for centuries. I was panting, still shaking, and covered in a cold sweat. I was in desperate need of a shower, since I was too shaken up to take one yesterday, so I headed back to my cabin and rinsed off, in hopes to also clear my mind. Nobody was in the cabin when I stepped into the shower, and I was actually quite relieved. I didn't want anyone to see me post-shock, and I really didn't want to explain myself and my absurdity. Halfway through the shower, I closed my eyes while I rinsed the shampoo out of my hair. That was when I felt it again. I was speared through the gut with this fear that someone was in the room, watching me shower. I opened my eyes, letting the soapy water stream into them and sting me and half-blind me. Behind the shower curtain, there was the silhouette of a figure. A scream managed to escape my throat, and as it did, I slipped backwards and had like what felt the porcelain wall of the shower hit the base of my skull. I woke up with a jerk and bolted upright, scared for my life. My eyes were open, yet all I could see was this blackness. Oh, damn. I must have hit my head so hard I was sort of blind. I was on the verge of tears because of this newfound life-changing moment when I felt something crinkle up on the bridge of my nose. It was the blindfold. I slid the bandana off and was drowned in relief. I felt idiotic for jumping at such a childish conclusion, but that moment was short-lived when I finally looked around and recognized where I was. I wasn't in the shower, or even in the cabin. I was lying in a mound of damp dirt and rotting leaves underneath a tree that had no branches and stood straighter than the rest. I was wearing the same clothes as I was when I first entered the woods earlier, and yet again, I was completely alone. My initial thought was that I did something really stupid like spin around too fast or too long and passed out as a result. I was trying to recall walking back to the cabin and taking that shower. It was all so very vivid, so I guess I just had a crazy dream. A gentle breeze tumbled through the woods and brought with it a taste of salty air. As the wind caressed and cooled me, I came to a realization that made my heart stop. My hair was still wet. <laughs> 